This morning, congregation, in your Bibles, we would turn your attention to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 1 through 14 in your pew Bible. You can find this section on page 1342. After we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll also turn our attention to what we profess and believe to be a faithful summary of the Word of God. This morning we go to the Belgic Confession, Article 16. And in your pew, uh, you can find the Forms and Prayers book. And Article 16 is on page 170 within that book. We come this morning to consider the doctrine, and that is the the truth or the reality of what theologians call predestination. And we want to read from Ephesians 1. Many passages within Scripture reveal the reality of predestination. That is that God from all of eternity uh, has chosen some unto eternal life, but also has passed by others and has determined uh, to condemn those for their sin. Uh, This truth of predestination uh, is doubted uh, by many, but is clearly revealed within the Word of God. Uh, One of the passages that is most clear in the revelation of the doctrine uh, of predestination is that of Ephesians 1. So we begin at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 14. Here now together the reading of the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of all sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Thus far for this morning, the reading from the Word of God. Article 16 of our Belgian Confession is entitled The Doctrine of Election, and it states that we believe that all Adam's descendants having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man, God showed Himself to be as He is, merciful and just. He is merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those whom He, in His eternal and unchangeable counsel, has elected and chosen in Jesus Christ our Lord by His pure goodness, without any consideration of their works. 
He is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall into which they plunged themselves. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The Bible is a book of contrast. Uh, Now ultimately, the Bible is a self-revelation of God. Uh, But as God reveals Himself, uh, He also reveals that there is a remarkable contrast within the human race. Uh, There are certainly points of solidarity within the human race. All human persons are descendants of our first father, Adam. All human persons in Adam's fall were plunged into a a state of guilt and a condition uh, of sinfulness. Uh, But then a remarkable distinction or contrast is also clearly seen within Scripture. Some human individuals, upon hearing the proclamation of the glad tidings of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, respond with faith. Uh, That is, with a certain knowledge and also with a, a hearty trust in the Gospel, and especially in the person of Jesus Christ. Exercising this faith, they come to embrace Christ and they receive all of the promises and all of the benefits, including the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And yet others. uh, Others, whether they hear the proclamation of the Gospel or whether they do not hear the proclamation of the Gospel, others continue to live a life of indifference, of impenitence. They continue to walk according to their own imagination. They continue to walk into the eternal state of condemnation. We see that distinction within the pages of Scripture. We also see that distinction within our experience. But what is the cause of that great contrast? Why is it, may we humbly ask that we find ourselves here in the midst of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, while the majority of the human race has a complete indifference at best and perhaps an open hostility towards not only the church, but also the Christ of the church. You see, the answer to that question reveals something of how well we understand the gospel of grace. Because the answer to that question, why we find ourselves here in the church, exercising faith in Jesus Christ, praising and worshiping His name, having received the benefits of forgiveness and of everlasting life, the the reason for that is God's electing mercy. And if a Christian, and by extension if a Christian congregation, understands this truth very well, then that Christian... And that Christian congregation will be characterized by a profound sense of humility. Knowing that we did not make ourselves to differ from the grossest unbeliever or the most perverse person walking in immorality. Having this profound humility, there will also then be from the heart of the Christian and from the heart of the Christian congregation a true sense of worship. If we understand that the only reason we are here and not out there, so to speak, is because of God's electing mercy, then all of our glory and all of our praise will be given unto God Himself as He shows us who He is. And so to those ends, we want to consider this morning uh, this theme, our belief concerning predestination. As we do so, we'll notice, first of all, the background to predestination. 
And then secondly, the action in predestination. And then thirdly, the purpose of predestination. So we have, and we just point out again with the introduction of the theme, uh, that this is all building upon passages such as Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 is not the only passage in Scripture that speaks about the profound mystery uh, of predestination. But especially perhaps to the young people, when you are challenged by those who are in the broader church context on why it is that you believe in this second letter, uh, the U of the TULIP acronym, why it is that you believe in unconditional election, our answer is not because in our rational exercises of our own creativity we have come to determine that this is the ultimate cause of this distinction in the human race, the reason we believe in election is because God has so clearly revealed the reality of election, especially in Ephesians 1. For myself, I do not understand how you can read Ephesians 1 and still deny unconditional election. But we notice, first of all, then, the background to predestination, because to rightly understand predestination, and that word, you'll notice, is a compound word, to predestinate. Uh, destiny is the eternal, the eternal location of a human person. And you might say there are only two eternal locations. And Scripture is very clear here, although it is denied by many. There is either the location or the destination of heaven with all of its unspeakable glories, or there is the location of hell with all of its unspeakable horrors. And every single human being who has ever been conceived will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. And when you put the prefix pre before destination, we indicate by this word that God in His sovereignty has predetermined from eternity past, if we can speak that way, where every single individual human person will spend eternity to come, either in heaven or in hell. But it is exactly at this point that many rise up and object and they say, well, that's not fair. Or they say, well, that compromises uh, the free agency of a human being. Uh, Many will say, well, this is some type of fatalism. Not necessarily, if we properly understand the background to predestination. Because you see, we often in our minds and others also, uh, they begin with man as being neutral. Or perhaps man uh, as being good. And indeed, man was created good in the image of God. But as we've considered in recent weeks, man plunged himself by his sinful act of defiant rebellion. Man plunged himself into this situation of condemnation and of moral corruption. So predestination is painted against the backdrop, first of all, of the depravity of man. The depravity that is the reality and the severity of humanity's fall into perdition. Now, perdition, perhaps a word that's not very commonly used within our day. Uh, but this idea, as our Belgic confession has it, that is brought up in this word perdition, is that of eternal damnation under God's burning wrath. Now, these topics are not popular in pulpits in our day. 
But we just simply ask, are they biblical? Is it true that God has a burning wrath against sinners? It is. It's absolutely true that God in His holiness reacts against sinners with a holy and a just wrath. Now, painted against that backdrop, uh, we then come to understand man's predicament. Because man is ruined by sin. That is, man has fallen into utter spiritual destruction. And, And now, this will begin to help us understand, but also will enable us to appreciate something of the remarkable mercy that there is in the act of election. So you and I, we must bring our minds into captivity to the Word of God uh, so that we no longer think of ourselves as morally neutral by nature or perhaps as those who are good by nature, but that we reflect properly upon the testimony of Scripture and that we say, yes, I myself as a member of the human race, apart from God's mercy, am a ruined sinner who lies in the state of perdition. You might say, well, these are strong words. Can they be backed by Scripture? I believe that they can. One example is that of Isaiah 6. And the vision that is given to Isaiah, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, testifying to the holiness of the Lord God. And then what does Isaiah say? Does Isaiah say, well, I, Isaiah, am a man of moral neutrality? Does he say, I, Isaiah, am a man of moral integrity? Does he say, I, Isaiah, am a man of good intentions? Well, I trust you know that that's not what he says. He says, woe am I. I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I ask you as I ask myself and as I ask everyone who hears these words, do you agree with Isaiah's testimony as you reflect upon the holiness of and the justice of God. By nature, woe am I. I am the one who is depraved. But not only is this part of the backdrop, there's also the backdrop of the sovereignty of God. And I trust that we understand as a congregation uh, that this truth, the sovereignty of God, has to be the foundation, has to be the, the very heartbeat of who we are uh, as those who claim the Reformed heritage. Uh, And it's wonderfully summarized by uh, the author of our Belgian Confession. God showed Himself to be as He is. God showed Himself to be as He is. Uh, The late Reverend Knott, who has now passed on uh, out of the militant church into the triumphant church, uh, he used to say to me, the most important truth that the church needs to hear, is that God is God. And I remember the first time that he said that to me. I thought, well, that seems to be an overly simple statement. God is God. Uh, What does that mean? But in that simple statement, there is packaged the absolutely remarkable truth that God is who He is. In all of His attributes, which of course in Him are one, uh, that God is God and that He alone is God. And we are reminded of this every Sunday morning. 
uh, when we read the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments are not just an arbitrary list of ten do's and don'ts, but rather are, at least in part and in the greater part, the revelation of who our God is as the one and only true God, infinite in His holy perfections including both His mercy and His justice. And these are not two attributes in God uh, that war against each other uh, with justice pulling one way and mercy pulling another way, but rather in God. His justice is a merciful justice. And His mercy is a just mercy because God reveals unto us that He is exactly as He is and part of what we need continually. And this is why corporate worship is so essential. What we need continually is to have our spiritual eyes drawn off of ourselves and fixated upon God. I firmly believe that so much of man's condition and also of man's discouragement and of man's, so to speak, uh, just simply downcast spirit is because we are infatuated with ourselves also within the church. And if you listen to your own heart, and if you listen to the conversations within churches, so much conversation is centered around ourselves. Well, I think this. Well, I think that. Well, I like this. Well, I like that. Well, I want to do this. Well, I want to do that. Congregation, God is God. This is what we need to rediscover. And part of the way of rediscovering it is submitting ourselves once again by way of Renewed dedication to the revelation of the Word of God and of the sovereignty of God who has infinite power, infinite knowledge, and infinite wisdom. And when we see God as God, then we will see ourselves properly. And then our worship especially will not be fixated by our own imagination or our own desires but upon the glorification of our great God. So let us be a people who boast in God's sovereignty because because real comfort, real spiritual confidence is only found in recognizing God's sovereignty also as that reveals itself in predestination. So the first point, the background, the predestination I believe can be summarized by P.Y.D. Young who writes, with unquestionable justice, God could have left all men in the perdition in which they were plunged. With unquestionable justice. We hear much in our culture of justice. In part, here is justice. God could have left every single one of us And every single member of the human race in the perdition that is in the state of condemnation and subject to God's burning wrath in which we ourselves were plunged. But He didn't. And here again come those two most profound words of the Christian Gospel. But God. We find it in Scripture. Perhaps most notably in Ephesians 2, and you being dead in sins and trespasses, God has made alive. It's also picked up uh, here in Article 16, after it says that we believe that all Adam's descendants having thus fallen, and then it goes down to describe perdition and ruin, then it 
states God showed Himself to be as He is merciful and just. And so that brings us into our second point, the action and predestination. Considering God and His sovereignty as He looks upon humanity in this state of perdition and ruin, God acts. And He acts in predestination, first of all, with the action of election. A few things, this is not a comprehensive explanation of everything that there is involved with an election. That, first of all, would be impossible for us. We cannot fully plumb the unfathomable riches of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And time does not allow us even to begin to say what could be said about election. Uh, So we content ourselves with saying just a few things about election. First of all, that election is a free act of God. An absolutely free act. What do we mean when we say a free act of God? We mean this, that there was no outside compulsion upon God's decision to elect. Nothing outside of God motivated Him to act the way He did. We as human beings... Uh, we do have free moral agency, but there are so many factors that, that come into play when we make a decision, outside factors. And so, boys and girls, maybe this is most simply illustrated for you. Let's say you have this idea that 11 o'clock at night is going to be your, your bedtime. And you, in your mind, you think, yeah, that's a good bedtime, 11 o'clock at night. But then your your mother, maybe your father, but your mother most likely comes and says, no, 11 o'clock is not a good bedtime. 8 o'clock is a good bedtime. And so 8 o'clock rolls around, uh, and your mother says it's time for bed. And so you, being hopefully an obedient child, you go off to bed. Now your decision to go to bed at 8 o'clock was powerfully influenced by your mother's statement that 8 o'clock is your bedtime. You might wake up in the morning and think that a chocolate candy bar would be a wonderful meal for breakfast. But again, most likely your mother says, no, that's not the best choice for a breakfast meal. So you are not free to act because of outside influencers. And, and, And adults, we also are influenced in our decisions by so many outside factors, but God is not. His election is a free act, whereby He chose from before time, from eternity, that realm above time, outside of time, beyond time, individual, particular persons. And I want to stress this because uh, although the Uh, The air of the federal vision perhaps is in our past. There's really nothing new under the sun. And one of the great errors, one of them, many were made, but one of the greatest errors of federal vision movement uh, was that it denied that God elected particular persons. Uh, We read of names being written in the book of life. The names of particular people. So God did not just simply elect a, a, an unspecified corporate entity. But He set His love upon particular persons. And He did so, and here we get to the emphasis upon the unconditionality of election. He did so not based, not based upon anything favorable in those particular persons. And here again, perhaps an illustration is helpful uh, for the children or the young people. 
I don't know if this is still popular on playgrounds. Perhaps we've uh, moved beyond this action. But when I was a kid, you'd go out for recess, uh, noon recess or whatever, and uh, not so much in the winter, but maybe in the spring, you were going to play basketball outside on the, the playground. And you always had the, the two guys who were the most athletic. They were always the captains of the teams. And, and you would choose teams. And so these two captains would begin choosing, electing, you might say, what players they wanted on their team. But it was not unconditional at all. It was very conditioned. Conditioned upon your athletic ability. Maybe conditioned upon a friendship. And so the two captains would start and they'd look upon the rest of us and they'd say, oh, well, well this person, you know, he's good at basketball. I want him to be on my team. And then you made your way down to the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. Uh, and then it was just, well, I don't want that person, so I choose this person. That is not how God elects. And I believe that this is the most profound truth for every single one of us to recognize. God did not look upon you and He did not look upon me and see anything within us whereby He said, I want that person in my church. I want that person gathered around the throne of the Lamb. Because I can foresee what a good Christian He's going to be. Or I can foresee what a noble person she is going to be. Unconditional means that God looked upon the common mass of humanity in their fallen situation and freely set His eternal affection upon certain particular persons. This brings about this point of application. If we find ourselves as living members of the church, we are all living members of the church for the same reason. God chose us. In Jesus Christ. And so in your mind, you can think about the person in the pew behind you and the person in the pew next to you and the person in the pew in front of you. They're here because of the same reason that you're here. Because God freely chose them to be here. The result of this election is the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. If you glance back at the words of our text, especially verse 4 and 5, we want to emphasize as much as we can this morning with the time allotted to us that election is in Christ Jesus. Because there is a, a, a dreadful tendency to separate election from the person of Jesus Christ and from the work of Jesus Christ. So you'll notice that the Apostle Paul says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that phrase is one that is most popular with Paul. As his inspired pen writes over and over, it's in Christ, in Him, with Christ, with Him. And so all of the blessings that we experience come out of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would just make this passing application that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and from a union with Jesus Christ, there is really no spiritual blessing. To be apart from Jesus Christ, that is to live without faith in Jesus Christ, is, as the Apostle says elsewhere, to be without hope. Without hope in this world. And without hope for the world that is to come. But election is in 
Christ. Notice verse 4, just as He, that is the Father, as He chose us in Him, that is with Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Notice that election is so that we should be holy, not because we were holy. This holiness is a result of the blessings, also the blessing of sanctification. Uh, But there is also then this point of application. How do we know that we are among the elect? By the fruit of election, especially that of faith. And so the Apostle Paul continues, and he emphasizes uh, the exercise of faith. This trusting, our trusting in the Gospel is the result of having been chosen from all of eternity by God's sovereign good pleasure. And so there is this pastoral application. We don't go around and try to peer into the hidden mysteries of God and and, and try somehow to peer into the eternal decree and see if there is an E behind our name for elect, but rather we exercise faith. And by the exercise of our faith, we thereby have the solid ground to conclude that indeed we are elect. Because if we have faith, that faith is a result of our election. And so we don't overly, curiously peer into the eternal counsel of God. We content ourselves with what He has revealed. We walk in faith. And we believe that that faith is a result of God's Mercy displayed to us an election. Well, of course, we also have to say something about the other side of the coin, so to speak. The action of reprobation. Reprobation as it is implied in Ephesians 1, and as it is revealed clearly, for example, in Romans 9, reprobation is the free act of God whereby He passes by other persons. Where He passes over other sinners, human beings, who have plunged themselves into perdition and into ruin. God in His sovereignty passes by such persons with His grace and with His mercy, determining to punish them for their sins. It's important to understand that Scripture and our confessions emphasize that God passes over individuals But the reason for the condemnation of such persons is because of their sin. The reason a person is condemned ultimately is always traced back to the reality of their sin. The result of reprobation is that a person who has been passed over in the decree of election will continue to harden their hearts in sinful defiance, will continue to reject the Gospel, will continue to resist the proclamation that there is a Savior, will not exercise faith, but will rather exercise an impenitence that will lead them to the eternal destruction of condemnation. And as we said when we began the consideration of the second point, much more could and perhaps should in a different context or on another occasion be said Uh, about the action of predestination, that of election, and that of reprobation. But as time hastens on, we also hasten on 
uh, to our third point, the purpose of predestination. Uh, And here I just want to cross-reference one passage. We've alluded to Romans. Uh, Here we turn to Romans 9, uh, verse 22 and 23. Now certainly, the result of predestination is the salvation of some and the passing by of others. But what is the ultimate purpose of predestination? Here again, there's a danger that we become too man-centered. If at the end of the day, our answer to the purpose of predestination is my salvation, that may be an indicator that we are overly infatuated with ourselves. Because what does Paul say in Romans 9, verse 22 and 23? What if God, wanting to show, display, make known, reveal His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory. And of course, that ties in uh, to what we also read in Ephesians 1, verse 14, when it says, to the praise of His glory. That ultimately is the purpose of predestination. That God who is God might be praised, might be honored, might be glorified, might be magnified by both the predestination that is in election, but also the predestination that is in reprobation. So there is the glorification of God in His mercy. Now we need to understand that election does not limit in some restrictive way those who are saved. Don't think for a moment that there will be some soul who desperately wants to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but is not able because they are blocked by the decree of reprobation. That's not the way it goes. If we believe that, then we have disregarded what we said in our first point, the background of man being in a state of perdition. But what election does is it glorifies God's mercy. What is mercy? It is God's goodness as that goodness is shown to those who are in a miserable state. Those who are in a most miserable condition. God's mercy is His goodness His affection, His love set upon those who have forfeited the right ever to experience His goodness and His love and His affection. God's mercy is His tender heart of compassion towards those whom He loves who find themselves in this perdition and in this ruin. And God's kind mercy is on display from all of eternity as He chooses some miserable, condemned, wretched persons and says, I will be their God. And I will redeem them. And I will forgive them. And I will cleanse them. And I will renew them. And I will bring them into covenant relationship with Myself. I will be their God and they will be My people, not just for time but for all of eternity. And this is all, of course, channeled, you might say, through Jesus Christ. You will never find mercy outside of Jesus Christ. Uh, That's why, of course, uh, in our services, we begin and we end uh, with the Trinitarian formula uh, of greeting and of farewell. And at the very center of it 
is Jesus Christ. The mercy of God is channeled to those who are elect through Jesus Christ. And when this is properly understood, there ought to be the response uh, again of humble gratitude. Have you ever had it? If you're honest with yourself, on a Sunday morning, you contemplate, perhaps secretly or perhaps in a verbal expression, wow, why go to church this morning? Maybe it's more common in the evening. Ah, why go to church this evening? I've heard people, and I have no one in particular within this congregation in mind, but I've heard people uh, in past contexts say, I don't need to go to church twice on Sunday. Maybe it's not about you. Have you ever looked at it that way? It's not about you, ultimately. It's not about whether I need to go to church. But reading Ephesians 1, the revelation of God's mercy and what that mercy accomplishes, should we not say then, yes, let us go into the house of the Lord that we might glorify Him and thank Him for His unspeakable riches of His mercy, whereby we who had cast ourselves into the pit of ruin and misery have been redeemed. Let us go and take songs upon our lips and prayers upon our hearts and testify to God and in the presence of any and all who will hear and witness that we are the company of the redeemed and that the only reason why we are redeemed is because of God's sovereignty that God has shown Himself to be as He is, a God of mercy in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But predestination does not only display God's mercy, but also something of God's justice. More will be said about this when we get into the doctrine of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God's justice, and here we need to think biblically, congregation, because again, justice is a word that is being bantered about within our culture and within our society, and also within the broad evangelical church. But we might say that justice, first and foremost, is that perfection of God by which He maintains His righteous holiness over against every violation of His moral commands. But at the very fundamental level, what does it mean that God is a God of justice? That violations of His moral commands are met with holy and righteous punishment. And this especially is seen in the horrible decree of reprobation. Hell itself will testify of the glory and of the greatness of God. And so both heaven and hell will speak for all of eternity saying to the entire created realm, God is God. A sovereign God who is a merciful God, but also a just God. And this is, I believe, the very heartbeat of the Reformed faith. This is the very heartbeat of the Pauline epistles. This is the very heartbeat of the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the very heartbeat of the Scriptures itself. And when we come to understand that, then we ought to be characterized. And in our closing point of application, uh, we simply ask for reflection upon this. We ought to be characterized as a people who, yes, 
are a people of conviction based upon the truth of the Word of God, but also a people who are characterized by a profound humility. Because when we begin to see God as God, the only fitting, the only proper response is to imitate that of Moses when he confronted the Lord God in the burning bush that was not consumed. We ought to make haste, bow down, and worship God as God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise You for You are a great and a wonderful God. and You have displayed something of Your greatness through the revelation that we find in the Word of Scripture, including the difficult and incomprehensible decree of predestination. Our Lord, we acknowledge that we have tread this morning on holy ground as we've considered Your unconditional decree of predestination. But Father, we ask for a blessing that we might be humbled but also comforted and that Your name might be honored and glorified. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.